From Public Radio International, this is America Abroad. I'm Madeline Bram. In recent years, Islamic extremist groups have infiltrated large parts of sub-Saharan Africa, killing thousands of people and displacing millions more. From al-Shabaab in Somalia, Uganda, and Kenya... Students say the attackers were going from dorm to dorm targeting Christians. Many woken by the sound of gunshots fled in a panic as military forces arrived. To Nigeria's Boko Haram, the world's deadliest terror group. The Islamist extremists have been terrorizing villages in Gwaza, near the Cameroonian border. There are reports of hundreds dead. And now the group Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb has moved from North Africa into countries like Mali, Mauritania and Burkina Faso. Here's what we know this morning. At least 23 people, really from all over the world, were murdered overnight. Many reportedly at point-blank range after a group of militants stormed a hotel popular with tourists and Western diplomats. The two groups currently responsible for half the deaths from terrorism around the world are ISIS and Boko Haram. According to the Global Terrorism Index, in 2014, Nigeria had the largest increase in the world in deaths from terrorism, more than 7,500 people. Islamic extremism isn't just a security threat. It's also threatening traditional African Muslim culture. The changes are happening in mosques and schools funded by Middle Eastern donors. They come with nice buildings, nice infrastructure, but a new curriculum. For example, girls who are trained in such school will marry people from those schools. And you can see drastic changes even in their clothing. On today's program, we explore how Islam has been traditionally practiced in Africa and why some places are more vulnerable to radicalism than others. We'll hear what some countries are doing when confronted with Islamic extremism, and we'll see what the West is doing about it. In many parts of Africa, violent Islamic extremists pose a threat to existing governments. Many fear, if left unchecked, other countries could become like Sudan, where the government has been taken over by extremists. In 1989, Omar al-Bashir, then a colonel in the Sudanese army, orchestrated a coup. He overthrew a democratically elected government. Under his rule, the country has become an Islamist dictatorship that has imposed strict Sharia law. Sudan has become a haven for international terrorism. It was the base of operations for Osama bin Laden in the early 1990s. Later, the Sudanese government backed a campaign of ethnic cleansing against its non-Arab citizens in Darfur. Sudanese activist Mohamed Abu Bakr was just in grade school when the changes started happening in his country, but he remembers them well. I was raised mainly by my mother, uh, observant uh, Muslim, but in a quite liberal house where I was never forced to be Muslim in any way. And uh, till this day, I identify as cultural Muslim, not really practicing at all. The Muslim identity was mainly spiritual and cultural, not really religious. Um, In my house, I was raised in some sort of a bubble where we were raised the old way Sudan was. And I think my mother insisted on, you know, raising us uh, that way and not the way that uh, the government was trying to force people to be raised. And uh, there were no gender differences, uh, for example. That's a big issue in Sudan. The gap in gender rights. uh, In my house, we all had the same curfew hours, the same dating rules. People outside did not even date. My sisters were allowed to date. We had 
the same freedom to choose uh, what to wear and who to date. We had the exact same rights. The rights were distributed by age. So I'm the youngest. I had the least right in my house, but not gender-based. It was in the mid-90s that my bubble was bursted for the first time, you know, watching my sisters put on hijab for the first time because that's the law now. It was an aha moment for me, like, okay, maybe life is not really what I think it's like. Well, I remember the look in their eyes that day the law was passed. They were heartbroken that they will ha had to change from mini skirts to long skirts and cover up the arms and the hair. And it was just, and it's really hard, especially in a country like Sudan, where it's really hot and it's not made for that kind of wardrobe. For me personally, I was like, just remember thinking how unfair it was why it only targeted women and not men, the whole law and the whole police unit that was put in place just to enforce that law. And I believe that it has everything to do with me turning to women rights activism that day, especially, specifically. Sudan before was a socialist, secular democracy before uh, the uh, Islamists came to power. Sharia was something that is quite foreign to, to people. Um, before Islamists came over, virginity wasn't a thing. Honor wasn't a thing. And uh, now it is. And uh, now that's the culture. After 27 years of Islamism, it became the norm. Abu Bakr says it wasn't just this stricter form of Islam that felt out of place. It was also introduced with heavy, uh, you know, pan-Arab rhetorics. Uh, it's not just Islamism. It's also Arabism, forcing Arab identity on indigenous African groups. And that was met with a lot of resistance. Um, South Sudan got you know, on fire again. Uh, the civil war in South Sudan resulted because of the Arab identity aspect. And the ethnic conflict in Darfur was caused mainly by that because uh, also Islam in Darfur is heavily Sufi and the identity is deeply African and uh, that just did not resonate with people. And that's why there are conflicts all over the country, east, south, and west. People in the center had not really much choice but to succumb to the new paradigm of life. Intellectuals, activists, they were heavily executed and persecuted and forced to flee the country. People were met with severe violence. Anyone who had any opinion to say, feminists and women rights activists were also heavily persecuted and the laws were rigorously enforced. And as a result, uh, Sudan became the Islamist dictatorship that is known today. That was Sudanese human and civil rights activist Mohammed Abu Bakr. As he noted, there's a long tradition of Islam in Sudan. And on the entire continent of Africa, there are 330 million Muslims, roughly a quarter of the world's Muslim population. It's a tradition that goes back centuries, says Rudolf Butch Ware. He's a professor of African history and Islamic studies at the University of Michigan. For basically the stretch of sub-Saharan Africa that goes from Senegal in the west to Somalia in the east, 
and that kind of reaches down into the northern portions of Ghana and Burkina Faso and Nigeria and Chad um, and Sudan. Wow, we went pretty much straight across the continent. Um, those places have been majority Muslim or exclusively Muslim for five or six hundred years. So Islam really spreads from those centers in what's usually referred to as the Sahel region of Africa, the Sahel meaning shore. It's not referring to the shore of the ocean, but rather the shore of the Sahara Desert. Um, Islam first arrives, you know, through uh, traders and scholars that cross the Sahara. Local African populations adopt Islam, and especially some start teaching Islam as their vocation. And from those centers, Islam slowly spreads for four or five hundred years beginning around 1000 CE until it becomes the majority religion in a number of parts of sub-Saharan Africa and a minority religion almost everywhere in sub-Saharan Africa. Another factor in its growth, says Ware, was Western intrusion into Africa. Basically, within the past 100 or 200 years, lots of places that had minority Muslim populations eventually came to have majority Muslim populations. And that has to do with a lot of things, but part of what it has to do is with European colonization of Africa. Christianity was promoted, European civilization was promoted as the way to be modern for Africans. And one thing that happens in many African societies is that rather than embracing the culture and religion of the colonizer, Africans embrace the culture and religion of a minority group within their own society. Ware says while Africans read from the same Quran as Muslims all over the world, most practice a different form of the religion. Traditional Islam, as lived in sub-Saharan West Africa, is closely associated with Sufism, closely associated with spiritual movements and the, the kind of mystical tendency within Islam. Sufi Islam is much more insisting on an imagistic approach. Mamadou Diouf is the director of the Institute of African Studies at Columbia University. It's about images, it's about monuments, it's about saints. It's about miracles. And this kind of religion has been influenced by local spiritualities. That is not only a religion which is appropriated and accepted literally. It's a religion which had to do with engaging with local traditions. And it's local spiritualities which had to engage with Islam in order to turn it into a religion of their own by communities who are still within the logic of Islam, but who believe that you have multiple readings of a religion. You have a possibility of learning the religion through an experience which is an emotional and personal experience. Another key distinction, gender roles. Professor Butch Ware says that in Sufism, women are not only educated, in some cases, they've become leading scholars. Many of these women have become incredibly accomplished religious scholars. And actually, I was just writing a, a piece about an 18th century scholar in southwestern Mauritania called Khadija bint Muhammad al-Aqil, who was thought to be the greatest living scholar in her time, so much so that her own brothers, who had received training in specific fields from their father, they came to renew their licenses to teach those books with their younger sister, because she was thought of as being the best living scholar at the time. 
time. And if you didn't have a teaching authorization from her, you were thought of as deficient. And she taught students that were from Arab background, from Berber background, from Sub-Saharan African background, irrespective of skin color, irrespective of gender. Within Sufism, customs relating to modesty are also less strictly defined all kinds of clothing and body covering norms, which people often associate with Islam, you know, many sub-Saharan African Muslims will tell you that those are really, you know, more closely tied to Arab culture than they are to Islamic religious norms, which tend to be much more open and less restrictive. Columbia professor Mamadou Diouf says often when Islamists look to gain influence, they do so by directly attacking these traditions. Their understanding of Islam for them, it's much purer. It's more orthodox. The idea also uh, that the kind of Islam, the brand of Islam, which is Sufi Islam, practice in this region is not a correct way of practicing Islam. And vice versa. African Sufis find this form of Islam alien. It's certainly true that especially within the past 60 to 70 years, many sub-Saharan African Muslim societies have been confronted by what are to them, you know, sort of new and alien and very much modern forms of, uh, of Islamic reform, especially associated with Wahhabi thought from Saudi Arabia and also um, what's, you know, usually referred to as Salafism and Islamism. Salafism being a kind of puritanical religious movement that arises basically in the past century and a half, and Islamism, which grows out of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, slightly less than a century old. Professor Ware says the areas where old traditions are strongest are also the most impenetrable to extremist ideology. The places that have been most strongly resistant to the modernist forms of Islam and especially the extremist versions of those modernist forms of Islam are the places where Sufi orders have been most successful, where they've had large uh, social constituencies because they've served as a bulwark against the spread of these fundamentalist ideologies, which are very strongly anti-Sufi. The places where Sufi orders are the strongest are the places where fundamentalism is the weakest. So Senegal is a perfect example of this. The Muradiya order um, has a completely nonviolent, you know, and apolitical philosophy. And they have four million followers just in Senegal. The center of Mourid life is the city of Touba in Senegal, which some call Africa's Mecca. Every year, millions of Sufis go there in order to pay homage to founder Amadou Bamba. During the time of pilgrimage, the roads are packed with cars and buses overflowing with people singing and rejoicing. This is from a 2013 documentary about the pilgrimage. It's called Tuba, and it was directed by Chai Vassarelli. Well, it's interesting because Senegalese Sufism is also very much tied into colonialism and the response to colonialism in, in West Africa. Um, Sheikh Amadou Bamba is considered a saint and the founder of the Marie Brotherhood. And essentially, he stood up to the colonial administration and said that he would not relinquish his religion. The French colonial government basically was concerned by the political power these religious brotherhoods had mandated that they essentially convert. And Sheikh Amadou Bamba stood up to this. And in this act of defiance, he was imprisoned. He very much became the symbol and this leader around which many other Senegalese essentially joined the faith. And that was such a powerful message 
at the time, and I think today too, and like this is Bamba's teachings and how they contrast, I think, the ideas of Islam in the mainstream media are what inspired me to look more closely at this religion and to make a film. And so your film captures the annual pilgrimage that takes place to Tuba. Yes, it does. And we've chronicled it over eight years. We did the pilgrimage five times. And it's just, I, there are no words that can really describe what this pilgrimage is like. It's like a town of about 20,000 expands to be a town of two million. Wow. Like overnight for five days. And it is at once the largest market like of commerce in Senegal for these five days. It is the social occasion that people look forward to all year. People fly in from all over the world and they come to pay their respects to Sheikh Amadou Bamba. They come to see their spiritual guides. It's kind of like this crashing together of like modern and age old. You've got people on cell phones while they're like slaughtering their bull. It was just kind of splendid and incredible like scene where different elements are coming crashing together and yet all so welcoming and tolerant. That's just generally not the image that one considers of Islam in the, you know, in the Western media. So throughout Africa, we're seeing the rise of ISIS and al-Shabaab and different sort of violent forms of rebellion waged in the name of Islam. And I'm wondering how the Marid handled that in Senegal, if there's been any kind of attempt by these other groups, and whether or not the Marid have been successful at repelling violent extremism? I think that's yet to be seen. Um, NGOs um, and foreign services base their West Africa operations out of Senegal because it is one of the you know oldest democracies in West Africa, as well as you know one of the most stable democracies in West Africa. However, I mean, with what happened in Mali, what's happening in the north of Mali, it's definitely part of the dialogue that Senegal is not immune to that situation. But that's one of the reasons why I think the West is investing so heavily in Senegal right now. So what is the relationship between the Marid and the Senegalese government? The Marids wield an enormous amount of influence. I mean, all the religious brotherhoods do. Um, however, um, in a country that is, the statistic is 97% Sufi Muslim, everyone's very proud of their first president, Leopold Senghor, who was Christian. Um, the institution of democracy is so deeply ingrained in the identity of being Senegalese that, you know, everyone believes that they have a voice and they, their vote does count and does matter. And this is something that is, it's not fragile. It's a cultural thing. It's part of like their national identity that this idea of tolerance and this idea of religious tolerance. Well, I want to thank you so much. Thank you. Chai Vassarelli is a documentary filmmaker whose work includes three films exploring various parts of Senegalese culture and religion. One of those films is about one of Africa's most famous musicians, Yusu Endur. He's a practicing Sufi Muslim. We'll hear about that later in the program. Coming up, money from the Middle East is helping more Africans get a religious education, but not everyone is happy about that. In, in their system... Rather than emphasizing first, for example, memorization, they emphasize first Arabic literacy. So they often conflate Islam and Arab identity. Let us know your thoughts about this program. Tweet us at America underscore abroad. Wake up, good morning. 
From Public Radio International, you're listening to America Abroad. I'm Madeline Bram. As we've been discussing over the centuries, Islam in Africa is mostly spread through trade routes and education. But in recent years, a more conservative form of the religion is being directly channeled from the Middle East through Islamic religious schools or madrasas. This has created a dilemma, as the infusion of money for education from the Middle East is helpful, but the curriculum these schools promote may be harmful. Halima Athamani reports from Uganda. Here in Kampala, this madrasa for girls was founded by Prince Badru Kakungulu in 1954. At the time, the prince felt the Muslim girl needed a good education founded on Muslim beliefs. That mission of an Islamic education continues today. I walked to meet the head of Quran lessons known as Shekhat. Outside the staff room, I meet female students who are moving around the school compound. The secondary school girls are dressed in uniforms ranging from purple to lime green. The girls at the higher level are dressed in white, short-sleeved blouses and light blue skirts of knee length. Even though it is a Muslim school, the girls do not cover their heads and maintain two inches length of hair. Full body covering is only worn by the girls while performing the five obligatory prayers of the day. Sheikha Jauhara Nachwanika is the head of the Quran lessons. She is convinced Quran lessons nurture the girls spiritually. They give them discipline and also make them yearn to do more for the sake of Allah. I ask her. You've become a very respectable woman, but I'm also wondering how has it benefited you apart from the spiritual way? First of all, I'm exceptional. I'm the only lady like this big institution who can speak Arabic and I'm the only teacher who teaches Arabic. There are these people who think people who go through madrasas are just being indoctrinated to be extremists. They're ignorant because in madrasas, Quran teaches us good morals. In Uganda, the number of these madrasas isn't huge and there's really no fear here of religious extremism. Perhaps, says one official, because Uganda is multi-ethnic and multi-religious and this discourages this kind of extremism. Another reason is that perhaps the madrasas here had a disorganized beginning. Analyst Sheikh Hamid Bimgenzi of the Islamic University in Uganda says they were established by Arab traders from countries such as Yemen, Oman, South Sudan and Egypt. As a result, these madrasas lack a uniform accredited national curriculum. In addition to that, the facilities there are bad. No good toilets. The available toilets are very dirty. <laughs> Can you imagine? The teachers themselves sometimes share toilets with children. While things are relatively calm in Uganda, in Kenya, it's a different story. Last year, there was an attack in Garissa University, and President Uhuru Kenyatta, in his words, blamed the madrasas for radicalizing students. He stated that Kenya's task of countering terrorism has been made all the more difficult by the fact that the planners and finances of this brutality are deeply embedded in the communities. However, it's hard to tell if this is correct. Two years ago, I tried to visit the Nairobi Muslim Academy in South Sea and Mahadi Girls Training Institute in Pangani. The manager of the school angrily denied my entrance. He claimed that his school had suffered security raids by the military back in June. He also said he himself was stopped by Kenyan military five times along different roadblocks on suspicions that he could be a terrorist. Further complicating it, the government is reluctant to talk about the raids. 
Muhammad Mwijuma Munyipembe is the Director of Quality Assurance and Standards in Kenya's Ministry of Education. He oversees the all-round performance and curriculum of all of Kenya's schools. He said he knew nothing about the raids, despite the widespread reporting. And for your information, the government respects madrasas. But of course, if you are doing things which are unusual, you'll be followed. My children are going to madrasa. I've never heard of that. More recently, I have been talking to an analyst who says there is no evidence that these madrasas are creating terrorists. Yet, President Kenyatta is not convinced. Apart from raids, undercover agents have been placed in the madrasas. Additionally, the Kenyan government, through its Ministry of Education, is trying to introduce new curriculum that is less Arab-centric for fear that that's what is radicalizing the youth. Whether or not these measures will slow the recruitment of Kenyans to al-Shabaab or potentially backfire against the government remains to be seen. For America Abroad, I am Halima Athmani in Kampala, Uganda. Falu Ngam is from Senegal and also a professor of linguistic anthropology at Boston University. He says he can understand the fear in Kenya and Uganda, not only because of the political extremism that some of these madrasas bring, but also because of their approach to teaching Islam. What Americans may not realize, he says, is that Quranic schools are the oldest forms of educational institutions in Africa, but their structure and curriculum are different from modern madrasas. For example... Uh, One of the key differences is that in the traditional African Quranic schools, you start by memorizing the Quran because it is believed that the Quran being the word of God has to be ingested so that the person becomes a moral example in society. In contrast, in, in their system, rather than emphasizing first, for example, memorization, they emphasize first Arabic literacy. So they often conflate Islam, and Arab identity. Making Arabic literacy a primary educational goal in African madrasas troubles Professor Ngam. Traditionally, he says, Africans have studied Islam in a variety of languages, and he recites a poem written in Ajami that shows multilingualism is a divine grace. God created Mandinka, Fula, Arabic, and Wolof speakers and understand them. So God is multilingual, <laughs> multilingual. So for these people, you can be a very good African and be a very good Muslim. These are not mutually exclusive. But many madrasas, especially extremist ones, he says, are trying to change that idea. They come with nice buildings, nice infrastructure, but a new curriculum. For example, girls who are trained in such school will marry people from those schools. And you can see drastic changes even in their clothing. Signs of a new ideology, he says, a channel for Wahhabi and Salafi thinking, which sends a message that a person who identifies culturally as an African is not a good Muslim. It's because of such beliefs that, for example, Ansar al-Din and Boko Haram thinks that they're not good Muslims. You know, and, and, and I think that's, the, that's really the challenge for the 21st century. We return now to Kenya, which for years has been dealing with the problem of Islamic extremism. Increasingly, the Kenyan government has been taking dramatic steps to root out terrorists on its own soil. Recently, Kenyan police raided a mosque in the coastal city of Mombasa that was believed to have ties to al-Shabaab. 250 people were arrested, and police said they recovered a small cache of grenades and other weapons. Since that raid, Kenya's tough approach to cracking down on extremism has been marked by disappearances and extrajudicial killings. 
It's done little, though, to douse the simmering resentments of young men in Mombasa, where widespread unemployment and drug use have left them vulnerable to radicalization. Emily Johnson has the story. This is the infamous Majengo Mosque. It's called Masjid Musa. It has been the scene of trouble. I'm with a local journalist driving through Majengo, the neighborhood of Mombasa that is home to Musa Mosque, and where many people who attended it during its extremist days still live. We're on our way to meet one of them and his family. In their apartment, a playful toddler tries to grab my microphone. The child's father, we'll call him Hamza, is not here. Where exactly he is, I can't say. Somewhere in the Middle East, perhaps. His family won't tell because he's in hiding. Too many young men from this neighborhood have disappeared, allegedly dragged from their homes by police in the middle of the night and never seen again. It's very likely these young men were involved in terrorism. Or, for some, their only crime was being young and Muslim and idle. In the absence of a trial, we'll never know. What I can say is that Hamza attended Musa Mosque during its radical period along with his brother Ahmed, whose name and voice have also been changed. Whatever it was being preached there, these guys were just trying to say that you should defend your religion in case so somebody is talking ill about your religion in any way, whether in fighting or what. And what the religion teaches, when you die while trying to defend your religion, you go to paradise. So that was one of the beliefs that these guys were trying to say. Despite his defense of the mosque's radical teachings, Ahmed is careful to distance himself from al-Shabaab, saying he never saw any weapons at the mosque and doesn't believe in killing. He's more forceful when he talks about the police's treatment of young Muslim men, characterizing the raids as religious persecution by a predominantly Christian government and police force. The police were harassing the young guys, the ones who used to bring the riots and this and that. So we actually thought so many families, not just ours, so many families in this Majengo area thought that the best way is just to remove these boys out of the country. They go and work at least until the situation comes down, then they can come back. Despite this explanation, it's likely that some of these young guys have gone to Somalia to train with al-Shabaab. The militant group was responsible for the deaths of 67 people at the upscale Westgate Mall in Nairobi in 2013, and as many as 141 Kenyan soldiers at an army base in Somalia in January of this year. Last year, a former law student from the University of Nairobi was one of four gunmen who killed 148 people, mostly students, at Kenya's Garissa University. Many more young Kenyans are known to have joined, but in recent years, a number of those have found it not entirely to their liking and sought to come home. Mombasa County Commissioner Evans Achoki oversaw an amnesty program for returnees in nearby Kwale County last year, just before he was promoted and moved to Mombasa. They were deceived that they are going to get good jobs, they were going to be paid good money, and that's how they were recruited. Uh, Some were recruited through indoctrination, some were recruited through the social media, some wanted to be in solidarity with some friends. But the most important thing is that most of them, when they went there, they realized that what they were promised is not what they got there. The amnesty program has boasted of reintegrating 56 al-Shabaab defectors into Kenyan society through a de-radicalization curriculum, a program that is now in the works in Mombasa County as well. The program provides job skills training and materials for fishing, motorcycle taxis, and other trades. But convincing returnees to turn themselves into police is not easy, 
considering that these are the same police known for extrajudicial killings of suspected terrorists. Achoki acknowledged these killings might be an issue, but wouldn't confirm the scope of the problem. If it happens, you cannot say it is not happening, but uh, on the event that it's happening. So what is important is that when people have evidence, they should be able to present that evidence to the police. If they don't trust the police, they should present that information to the independent policing oversight authority so that these cases can be handled. In spite of this, the commissioner assures me that the government is making progress building trust with the community. Sitting on a hill overlooking the Indian Ocean near the southern tip of Mombasa Island, Farida Rashid Saif scoffs at the notion of any gains in trust. There's no trust, so they don't trust because what they have done... Myself, I went to one of the family, I told, you see, your child, come, they have come back. Let them take, be taken there. They're going to be counseling, they're going to be trained, and they're becoming better. So they came out with this boy. They talked to them nicely, they kept him to prison, and then they just uh, get him out of the prison. A few days, he's disappeared. That boy's disappearance, Safe says, is almost certainly because of police action. She thinks there's a better way to bring these returnees back into the fold. As chairwoman of the Kenyan Muslim Women's Alliance, she uses a soft de-radicalization approach that targets what she sees as the main culprits behind jihadist recruitment, drug addiction and joblessness. The alliance provides a space for rehabilitation and economic empowerment for men and women alike. One thing the program doesn't focus on very much? Religion. Farida doesn't see the extremism plaguing her city as having much to do with Islam at all. Radicalization is not Islamic. It is politically, economically, poverty and lack of employment. This is the cause why these children are involving themselves. It's not that they are not, they are not educated. They are educated. You see, it's sort of revenging all these things, you know. This, this young generation, they think, why our people are always poor, 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 and they are living in their own land as quarters. As I said, in Quran interpretation, they just interpreted in another way, not in a right, correct way. The midday prayer reverberates through the winding streets of Mombasa's old town. The crumbling mosaic of architectures on display here is a reminder that many centuries before the British, this steamy port city was a vital crossroads where Arabs traded with Africans in slaves and ivory. This mingling eventually gave rise to Swahili culture and the language of the same name still spoken across much of East Africa today. It's this culture and identity that Sharif Mudar Khitami fears is slipping away. The provincial chairman of the Supreme Council of Kenya Muslims and a practitioner of Arab medicine, Khitami echoes safe sentiments that Islam has been hijacked by something else. These people have branded themselves to be Muslims. And whatever that is happening in the coast is nothing to do with Islam. It's only a political development that is happening in the world affecting the Muslims. Now it has come through our borders in Somalia. And uh, to a certain extent, it has eroded the cultures, the way of life. And here on the coast, he says, that culture has always meant one thing. Islam here means coexistence, right? From the times of the Prophet, we have coexisted with other faiths. At one time, there was no other faiths here except Islam. 
But the other faiths came in here. Churches were built here. They were accommodated here by the locals. It's because the Islam believed in coexistence. Coexistence may be even harder to come by before long. Last month, Kenya announced plans to shut down a major refugee camp near the border with Somalia. The government cited security concerns in the decision. If they attempt to force 330,000 refugees back to Somalia, it would seem to indicate they're doubling down on their hardline approach. For America Abroad, I'm Emily Johnson in Mombasa, Kenya. Coming up on America Abroad, what the United States and the West can do to help Africa resist Islamic extremism. I can speak for the United States. We are not there to impose anything. I mean, our job as diplomats was to find that common ground of mutual interest and then work to keep that dialogue open and to reinforce it. If you want to join today's conversation on Africa's fight against Islamic extremism, find us on Facebook at America Abroad Media. You're listening to Africa's Fight Against Islamic Extremism on America Abroad. I'm Madeline Brand. On the morning of August 7th, 1998, two nearly simultaneous explosions occurred more than 500 miles away from each other, both at American embassies, one in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, the other in Nairobi, Kenya. The results were devastating. There's been complete destruction of Ufundi House, extensive damage of cooperative house and the U.S. Embassy, extensive damage of up to 40 buildings within a radius of 100 meters. More than 200 people were killed in those attacks. They were linked to Egyptian Islamic Jihad, a group connected to al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. More recent attacks by Islamic militants on Western targets in Africa include al-Shabaab's takeover of Nairobi's Westgate Mall and shootings at hotels in Mali and Burkina Faso. Eyewitnesses describing a horrific scene, gunmen, their heads covered, shooting into the air, then storming into the hotel. Jennifer Cook is the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. She says the U.S. embassy attacks were a watershed moment when the U.S. realized the extent of the terrorist problem in Africa. We know from the 1998 bombings that U.S. assets and individuals are vulnerable to terrorist threats. But I think more this is kind of the fear that link-ups between these group alliances or rivalries or takeover of territory, as in Mali, um, may create a space for jihadist groups to kind of congregate, uh, build a safe haven, have training camps and so forth, in a way that down the line can pose a more direct threat to the United States. While the attacks of 9-11 shifted the attention to the Middle East, there was a growing consensus in the Defense Department that military efforts to thwart terrorism should be consolidated within Africa. In 2008, U.S. Africa Command did just that. The basic mantra that we had at AFRICOM when I was the deputy commander for civil-military engagement there was to work with, through, and for our African partners in developing their capabilities to address their security challenges. That's Philip Carter. He's executive vice president at the consulting firm Jefferson Waterman International. Previously, he was an ambassador to two African countries. The challenge that we see with the most recent developments in Africa over the last 15 years is that this is becoming a transnational issue. And so as a result, governments have to come together. They have to address these issues with a common purpose. Progress is there. It is not uniform in every case. And there are places where we see continuing concerns. 
Johnny Carson is a senior advisor at another consulting group, Albright Stonebridge Group. From 2009 to 2013, he served as Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, and he points to the work done in Somalia by the African Union. Today, because of the African Union uh, mission operating in Somalia, and because of the support given uh, training and equipment by the uh, U.S. military, Uh, money, supplies, and support by the European Union and the UN, Somalia is on the way back. It is no longer a failed state. It is a fragile state, but it is a fragile state that is making progress. But Carson says the strategy should be multifaceted. A military solution is not the only way to resolve radical extremism in Africa. In fact, if a military-only solution is applied, it will not work. The way to end Islamic extremism is to open up opportunity, ensure inclusiveness of Islamic views, to ensure that there is greater religious understanding and tolerance, and most importantly of all, eliminating the sense of marginalization politically and economically. Opportunities have to be opened up. We have to think of that full spectrum of problems and underlying drivers that underlie radicalism, but that underlie conflict generally, and that underlie, you know, violence and rivalries. Again, Jennifer Cook. It's not external governments that are going to fix this problem. And you can put all the money into assistance, but if the governments of those countries are unwilling to do their job uh, to deliver and have the welfare of citizens at heart, this is a problem that no amount of foreign assistance can fix. And, says Philip Carter, this is where Muslim leaders can be out in front. What I have found, like for example, during my time in Cote d'Ivoire, I was struck by the level of interreligious communication that occurred between the uh, Muslim leadership in that country as well as with the Christian leadership in that country uh, to find common solutions to the frustrations that their young people were facing. I mean, it was, it was striking. I've seen the same thing happen in, in Senegal. I've seen it in Ethiopia. You know, trying to highlight the fact that this message of violence, this message of extremism, is alien. It's alien to their culture. It's alien to their communities. It's alien for their future. But there are also places where the local Muslim leadership is perceived as part of the problem, says Nigerian reporter Arukaino Umukuru. To be honest, Muslim leaders have a lot more to do. They've not done enough to stem the tide of Boko Haram or Islamic militancy in the north. People have lost faith in their leaders. Here's former Ambassador Johnny Carson. I think it is not a question of having a strong Islamic leadership. I think it is a question of having good leadership. Uh, leadership that respects uh, the rights of its citizens, uh, that is inclusive in its service delivery, that uh, respects uh, religious freedom, that practices democracy, that does not engage in corruption. But as nearly everyone we spoke to says, solving radicalization goes way beyond what can be done inside a mosque. I've spoken with 
scores of people who have joined up with groups allied to al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. And the reasons that they gave me for joining those groups had very little to do with religion and everything to do with satisfying their need for security from banditry. They also cited pervasive abuses by the security forces and other reasons why they joined up with those groups, as well as pervasive government corruption. My name is Corinne Dufka. I'm the West Africa Director at Human Rights Watch. I lived in Africa for 16 years, most of it in West Africa, researching human rights violations in a number of different countries in West Africa. The last time I was in Mali in March, I met with a number of village chiefs who were extremely concerned about the numbers of their youth who were joining up the Islamist armed groups in central Mali, which is a new area of operation for the Islamists. One elder described to me um, a series of bloody tit-for-tat communal clashes between farmers and herders. Uh, he was from the Pol ethnic group, which uh, comprises about 15% of Mali's population, and make their living by herding cows and other animals. And he described how in one of these tit-for-tat episodes, how over a dozen members of his community had been murdered um, by another ethnic group, and how he had repeatedly gone to the prosecutor as well as other government officials urging for this incident to be investigated and for those responsible held to account. And he described the frustration when this never happened. How, and, he, and he described a series of incidents were never investigated and how the lack of justice um, you know, led to lack of confidence in the local authorities. And ultimately, he said, was yet another factor driving people to support the Islamists. Dufka says what's really needed is for all leaders to be held more accountable. In the end, they spoke of how the jihadists had stepped into that vacuum uh, and stepped into it in a way uh, that had really responded to the very profound frustrations of their local population. So they asked me to tell the international community, to tell the Malian authorities to listen to them. Despite all the setbacks, there are reasons to be hopeful that this dual approach of military support and promoting better governance will be successful. In Nigeria, for example, their military efforts against Boko Haram have won back territory and slowed the number of suicide bombings. Philip Carter thinks gains can also be made against groups like al-Shabaab and al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, or AQIM. These violent groups can't sustain themselves. Maintaining power through force is not sustainable. It's not a human thing in, you know, over, over the long run. I am optimistic that ISIS will be defeated. I'm optimistic that AQIM will be something that people will reflect on in the, in the future as this horrible event that's out there. Will we eliminate terrorism completely from the planet? No, because it changes, it morphs. But by the same token, I think we've made it very, very difficult for a lot of people who want to do a lot of horrible things to a lot of people. And I think, uh, I think that, that effort's going to continue, and we will be successful. We don't have a choice. The sentiments we just heard aren't just limited to journalists, activists, and policymakers. Some artists in Africa are using their influence to spread positive messages about their land and their religion, and that extremism has no place in their country. Most prominent is Senegal's Yusu Ndour, one of Africa's best-known musicians. His album, Egypt, won a 2005 Grammy for Best Contemporary World Music Album. 
Recorded in Cairo, Ndur sings about his love for his Sufi faith. As he told NPR back in 2004, he wanted to tell people that no one country, race, or community should be able to claim their version of Islam is more correct than others. This album can say is not the religion for Arabic people, is also for black people, for African people, for Asian people. Assalamu alaikum means peace for all. Ndur's music was the initial source of inspiration for filmmaker Chai Vassarelli, whom we heard from earlier in the show. We leave today's program with Chai describing one of her favorite songs by Ndur. Tuba Daru Salam is a song in praise of the Sufi holy city of Tuba and the annual pilgrimage there that draws millions of people. Tuba. It's a popular culture take on this religion, essentially, where Yusu actually composed it, though, for the West to tell them the story of Tuba. Magal is this five-day celebration, and... You know, Yusu's song is infectious. You can't get it out of your head once you've listened to it. And it's quite true to the spirit of the pilgrimage itself. The refrain is Tuba Darussalam, which literally is translated Tuba, land of peace. And he repeats this refrain, you know, at every verse. And for me, I think it speaks to what the kind of the essential premise of the song is, and also of the religion, which is this idea of peaceful tolerance of religions um, that Yusu is celebrating. That's filmmaker Chai Vassarelli describing the song Tuba Daru Salam by Yusu Endur. Tuba Daru Salam Tuba Daru Salam Whether through song, prayer, speeches, or military action, Africans are finding a way to stand up to extremist forces. At stake is not only their security, but their culture and their traditions. You've been listening to Africa's Fight Against Islamic Extremism. This Hour of America Abroad was written and edited by Rob Sachs and produced by Yael Evan Orr with additional production help from Flan Williams. Audio engineering support was provided by Mario Saavedra and Phil Richards at KCRW. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes and stay up to date by signing up for our newsletter or by visiting our website at pri.org where you can also find extended interviews and exclusive content pertaining to this and other programs. I'm Madeline Brand, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this show was provided by the Henry Luce Foundation, Public Radio International stations, and listeners like you. R.I. Public Radio International.